Welcome to Raise the Standard. We're getting things done by lifting Christ above every area of life. And we're here with the Protestant Zoomers this week. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm an MDiv student at Westminster Theological Seminary. My name is Bailey. I'm an MDiv student at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary and pastor out here in central Georgia. Like Andrew said, we got the Protestant Zoomers on this week. So guys, it's an honor to have you on. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll get into our wolf, elephant, and lion for today. Uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, I'm Thomas. Uh, graduated last year. Ended up having a little gap year, ac- accidental gap year. But I'm about to uh, start attending uh, New St. Andrews College up, up there in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, ex- excited for that. Actually going to be moving, uh, moving here real soon. Awesome, man. Praise God. That's great. And the other co-host for Protestant Zoomers, man. Welcome. Thank you. My name's Robert, and a little bit about me. Uh, I'm going to school right now for construction management at Cal Poly Slow. I'm an intern for a construction company right now. And then a few of my things about me uh, that are coming up. I'm getting married soon. Awesome. And I'm a wonderful and blessed child of God. There it is. Don't know what else you need. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, like, like we said, fellas, we're so honored you guys are able to join us. Uh, we're excited for our listeners to get to hear you. Um, just so you guys know, uh, we got an 18-year-old and 21-year-old here. And so just sticking with the younger crew, um, and it's a blessing, man. We just actually got done getting to talk to you guys a little bit about why theology matters and matters for every area of life, for every person in every phase of life. So we're excited for that to carry over as we're pretty adamant ourselves about theology in action. So with that being said, what's on tap for today's episode? As always, we'll be sticking with our wolf, elephant, and lion layout, taking a nice little walk through the wild with a couple extra zookeepers today. So we're going to kick things off with our wolf of relativism, our wolf of relativism. So this is something that we would love to actually hear your thoughts on. Thomas, if you want to kick us off. Uh, why is this a wolf to the church? Uh, let's define this wolf to get things started. I think it's something that really needs definition. After all, relativism, it's ironic, needs defining. Uh, so, so why is this a problem? Is it a problem today? Is this even worth being on the episode? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a problem. And, and more specifically, it's a huge problem for our generation, Gen Z, uh, which is born ba- basically about late 90s to around, I think, like 2012 or 2014. Essentially, it's the ones whose childhood was late 2000s and, and 2010s. I think in terms of like sort of memory type things, it's the first generation to not have any memories of 9-11, mm-hmm. I think is is actually a good signifier uh, for, for, for Gen Z. We don't have any memories. Some of us were born before it but we don't for the most part have any memories of, of nine eleven. Right. Uh, but yeah, relativism is a huge problem for, for our generation. Uh, one of the first episodes we did for our podcast process, humans, we walked through this study by the Barna group. Uh, it was basically this, this awesome big study. I think it was released. It was either 2018 or 2016 was when they released it, but it was a study of Gen Z. Um, just looking at Gen Z's moral beliefs, political beliefs, 
you know, the, their spiritual status, all that sort of stuff. It's done by a Christian organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and get, you know, they get into even specifics about what, do, what does Gen Z about Jesus and, you know, inerrancy of the scriptures and, and that sort of stuff. Um, as well as kind of, you get a little bit of comparison to, uh, you get comparison to uh, generations all the way back to, I think even the greatest generation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I think going all the way back to the greatest generation. Um, but yeah, relativism, according to that study, and I think just from personal experience, me and Robert can attest to it, that relativism is, they basically define Gen Z as relativistic and um, a, a techno uh, generation. Those are, those are the two, the two biggest characteristics of Gen Z is that we are, we are relativistic and we are highly connected to technology, to the internet. One of the kind of ways that I always took relativism as was kind of like whatever floats your boat, whatever works for you. Like if you ever heard that saying, that's kind of just a relativistic kind of thought to go through like, Oh, whatever works for you. Oh, that if it works for you, then that's okay. But relative truth is kind of just non-existent. Um, There's, I guess you can have your opinion, but there at the end of the day, there's a truth. Mm. And uh, our generation likes to think about there being multiple different types of truths. And my truth, your logically, truth. that doesn't make sense. Just because yeah. fact and there's not fact. Yeah, it comes from a. It, it comes from a place of wanting to be nice, to the people around you. It comes from it. It comes from want, want, It comes from a place of wanting wanting to respect other people's opinions and stuff. Uh, and it, it, that that's the place that it comes from not wanting to step on any toes. Uh, you could, you can maybe say it's somewhat of a, of a understandable, you know, maybe even an honorable uh, place to be not wanting to hurt others, that sort of thing. Um, but there is such a thing as truth. And ultimately it is more hurt, hurtful for someone to be denied the truth rather than to tell them the truth. Yeah, I think that's really great. And we've heard you guys talk about that on your show. Um, I've listened to it uh, for a couple weeks at this point. And I'm really glad that you guys touch on that um, so frequently. And that it really does, uh, relativism is the way that we see it sort of on the street level, is that it really does play out in wanting to be accommodating and not wanting to rock the boat too much. Um, But in my experience, like studying it at school as a philosophy major, when relativism starts to work its way into like the university in like, you know, basically the the 1700s, um, it starts to really dissolve this idea of objective truth at the foundational level. And so what can seem sort of accommodating and uh, you know, just fine at the street level is actually something that's, it's a fruit that's from something that's actually really harmful at the root level. And, uh, I think it's really important that uh, you guys are addressing that for your, for your and questionably our generation, because Bailey and I are 1996 and who knows if we're Zoomers. We or squeak not. in there. We squeak in there. We squeak in there. We're, we're, <laughs> we're transitioning. So, uh, 
<laughs> so, yeah. Bailey, in your experience as a as a pastor or doing college ministry, I mean, has how has relativism sort of affected that Man, aspect, it, if at all? Yeah. Well, it certainly has. Um, so uh, I'm pausing here. There's a lot to unpack, but I think um, to unpack it charitably, relativity doesn't just affect um, primarily, yes, it, it affects the, the perspective of there being one objective truth. Um, but let's take, for example, a gathering of ministries out here in central Georgia. There can be a group of people who would affirm that, you know, yeah, Jesus is the only way, um, but then sort of approach the living out of that relativistically. Um, so I'll say it this way. There's uh, a lot of common convictions that aren't shared throughout the general body of Christ, such as church membership. Uh, out here, it's so susceptible for college students to just fall into this trap really, of sort of like a college summer away youth group. That's what a lot of parachurch ministries uh, come off as. Um, one of my uh, fellow elders out here, he coined them this way, uh, as synthetic brides. So sort of imitations of the church. And so here's how sneaky it is. And you asking this question in the context of being pastor is yes, absolutely, the movement of relativism affects um, and is an aggressive attack on Christianity, which is you know, the one true religion. And we stand on that, say, this is this way because of the objective truth of God and his word. Um, but even within the church, relativity, it absolutely affects people. Um, and Here's how it does, just for an example. Um, I was having a conversation one time with a college student just on how personal devotion is done, how their time in the Word had been, and it just divulged uh, a sentiment of not wanting to be confined to a schedule, not wanting to restrict the spirit, bro, and wanting to be free and not put God in a box. And I think that's a very common sentiment. I know in my context, and I think in our Gen Z, um, things uh, in regard to relativity, at the end of them, uh, desire everything to be personalized. And that includes God. That includes a Savior. Um, even in the verbiage of uh, current Christendom, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. While true... It's not what it's painted out to be. Uh, Christ saves a people. And yes, sanctification is an individual working out of one's salvation in the body of Christ. So when somebody is saved, it's not uh, from X to Y to Z. It's into the body of Christ. And so, man, I, I could talk about this all day, but in a nutshell, in the context of pastoring and trying to pastor well, it's sort of the surface level uh, idea that, yeah, relativity is out there. Um, what do we expect from the world, though, when they don't have logic? They don't have sound minds. All they can be is relative. Uh, they don't yet know the one, or rather they deny the one objective reality of God. 
Um, but in the church, man, when we start to adopt worldly ways of thinking, one of the foremost of which is relativity, that there is an objective truth, but you can go about it your way and it affects everything. It makes this worship song okay. It makes this mode of worship okay. And before you know it, you have fog machines being justified to create an atmosphere. You have uh, light up sticks being raised in worship and it looks more like a club than it does a gathering of God's people. And you have things that crumble because they don't have the spine of Holy Spirit. And so relativity, by all means, man, it, it is, it's in the church, uh, the professing church that is. So to answer that question, Andrew, I know the short answer turned long, but man, um, yeah, it, it stains a whole lot more than we see just on the surface. Yeah, so I, I love how you like frame it as like relativism is a direct affront to the Christian faith. So for you guys, like Robert and Thomas, have you guys encountered that at all in your own experiences uh, of doing ministry, whether it's online or just chatting with people in life? What does that look like? Well, I know, uh, you know, in a very specific way, we've done a few episodes with one of our agnostic friends. Um, Just for first, we did episode where we talked about that in general. And then we did, a little bit of uh, going through the the beginning of mere Christianity with C.S. Lewis. Um, so, and that, you know, that's a, a, you know, those are very head on conversations about uh, relativity and this sort of thing. And it's very true, uh, Bailey, when you said some people will get to the point and, and this is what, what, what our friend was like, where it's like, yeah, at some point it's, it's probably true that there's an objective truth, but, who is it to say that, you know, that we know it and, you know, it ultimately doesn't matter anyways. And it's just, it just matters what we do from here to here. Um, so, so there's that, that example where a very you know specific and direct example, but definitely, you know, in interacting with, uh, I did a little short, uh, I, I did one semester at our community college uh, and I was, and, and one of the classes I had was speech. And, and that was fun just hearing some of the, some of the other people uh, give their speeches and, and what, and what they believe. Um, I, I think general kind of like what Rob said, kind of pull your boat and uh, this for me, you know, there, there's, Oh, okay. That, that, that actually leads me to, to a thought with relativity and we see it so much in, in our generation you can't make a stand for anything. Mm. You have to nuance and opinion, opinion, opinion itself it, it, to death where, you, you know, it, pe- people, people do that when they, you know, they make a claim, but it's like, but you know, this is just my opinion and I might be wrong. And you know, yada, yada, yada. You, you, you do that to death until in reality, what's happening is you've killed your claim and it doesn't matter. And, no one needs to listen to it anymore. If, if you, if you can't take a stand for something and if there's no such thing as truth, then none of that matters. And when you get, when you come into a a disagreement with someone, it doesn't matter. 
you know, I, I, there, there was someone who had done a speech about how private schools are evil and oppressive and the government should shut them all down. And it's just, it's like, well, relatively like, like there's no such thing as ultimate truth. Why, why is it evil and oppressive? And you know, the, a, a common phrase among the, the reforms by what standard, by what standard are you saying that, that that is wrong and your way is correct. And you can get, you can get into that response of, you know, you know, there's no such thing as truth. Is that, is that absolute, is that statement absolutely true that there's no such thing as truth? Like relatively, relativity just fall, it, it tears itself apart. We, we see that in, in any sort of secular anti-gospel worldview, it ultimately eats itself. And that's just where it takes us. <laughs> like that's, that's why it's a threat to the church is because when, when you're committed to this idea of like radical relativism, you're actually not able to lift up, lift up Christ over anything because that's an authoritative claim that might cancel out someone else's authoritative claim over whatever they're trying to lift up. So whether it's explicitly a different religion um, or if it's sort of more uh, implicitly a different worldview, like, um, you know, like a secular pluralism that they're trying to lift up over every area of life, you actually lose this like cohesion of things and uh, the, the things aren't holding together anymore because you're lifting something up that's actually just dissolving all of the unity. Um, so with relativity or w with relativism, you have this idea that there's just this sort of like barren landscape out there that you're, you know, you're the creator of the facts. You can construct this sort of raw material into meaning. And what that does is it actually puts you on God's throne. It kicks him out of it. And you're now set up as creator, ruler, sustainer of your own little universe. Now the Bible calls that idolatry <laughs> and it's, it's wicked and evil. And, and I mean, it seems like we have a we have a generation that is being like catechized on that, whether it's from like your English and history classes, it's even making its way into like the science classes um, in, uh, in like K-12 schools. And so I, I think it's again, super important to highlight that it actually, this isn't just like a theoretical threat. This isn't just a slippery slope fallacy. It's like, guys, this is where ideas take us. And that's why it's important to keep your eye on the ball. It's, it's important to like, know what direction the wind is actually blowing culturally. And that's not to be a doomsday prepper. And that's not to say that like, you know, Jesus isn't actually victorious and the Great Commission isn't fulfilled. Because around these parts, we actually believe that those things uh, come to pass uh, according to the scripture. And so, uh, I, I, yeah, again, we just wanted to draw really intense attention to that because this is actual, this is an actual threat. Like relative relativity, relativism is an actual threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to actually lift him up over it, use biblical standards to assess it in order to uh, knock it down. And that's yeah. not without understanding it, but to, still to, to knock it down. Yeah. Robert, I'd love to hear from you, man. What, what's some of your thoughts on this? So kind of piggybacking, it's even in the church, um, one of the examples of this is Bethel Church. So you even mentioned fog machines. Uh, Cultish did like a whole uh, episode Escape, on it. Escaping Bethel, man. Parts one, yep. two. I think they might have yep. three. <laughs> uh, they, they have confetti in their yeah. HVAC units and they just have it 
all go through whenever like they build it up and God doesn't need that. And then they are coming up with theology like God's breath smells like apple juice and non nonsensical uh, things. That's the fruit yeah. of relativism. Yeah. It's true to them. Yeah. yeah. I think to uh, to bring this into practical perspective and both uh, theology in action, but also in uh, culturally what's going on right now, um, Milledgeville, uh, where I get to pastor in, is a very divided town. Uh, Sherman marched through Milledgeville, lit fire to the Capitol. Um, and so there's a lot of scars that run pretty deep. Um, so with the um, Black Lives Matter trademark movement going on, um, people exercising that theology, we get to see some of that out here in Milledgeville. And so I had one instance um, at a gas station where uh, I go to get gas because that's what you do and breakfast sometimes when you're running late. But I was getting gas this time and a group of black guys pulled up in their car and I think had maybe just gotten back from downtown where they were picketing and we're just talking about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And I'm the only white guy there. So they turn to me and they say, Black Lives Matter, right? And so I'm pumping gas and we're having this conversation that I get looped into now. I say, well, I know why I think they do. Why do you think they do? And see, it gets into this and the way that relativism and relativity affects theology for even the laymen to pastors now is on issues such as this. Because the fact of the matter is relativity presumes that the gospel, Christ, didn't have anything to say about something. So we can come up with something better. We can come up with a more suitable response. Uh, Rome wasn't like central Georgia now, right? Rome wasn't like a big city now. It's like, no, uh, you know, God's word is still sufficient and it still stands true. So we got into a conversation and I got to share with him what a lot of the church is missing out on right now. I'm seeing tweets that say, be, be careful about presenting the gospel during protests. You know, don't take advantage of people's pain. And I, I'm in my mind, I'm like, it doesn't make any freaking sense at all, you know? And so getting into that sort of relative, relativistic thought process, the church, when she stands on the cornerstone Christ, can at a gas station present to somebody why black lives actually matter. And it's because they have an eternal stamp of their creator on their souls and in their eyes. And it's not because of a melanin level in skin. And so relativity affects how much we actually live out our faith in day-to-day -day life. And it's, it is, like you said, I mean, it affects worship. It affects boldness. It affects something called Christian ambition and excellence. Uh, they don't jive well together. So yeah, I mean, it's a problem. Yeah. It like completely interrupts this idea that you're supposed to be giving an account for the hope that's within you. It's like, just because it's within you doesn't mean it's not an objective hope. Like it's the Holy spirit applying that good news of the gospel to your life and then giving a full account of that. Like that's what we're called to do. Um, so in order to sort of address maybe something a little bit deeper beneath the surface, or perhaps there's like an elephant in the room, one might say, 
what do you think is uh, lying underneath all this like relativism? What's a cause of it? I think one of the major causes is the fatherlessness of our of our culture, fatherlessness and and hate, hatred of of men as as leaders. I think. Um, hatred of literal fathers and ultimately it, you know, it's, it's hatred of, of our heavenly father. Uh, because without, without fathers, fathers, fathers are the ones who make the biggest impact on someone's life. I forget the exact stats, but the, the stats say that the presence of a father in the home, and this isn't even getting into whether they are, a good dad, or if they're a deadbeat dad who's just physically present but not emotionally, spiritually present, just the the physical presence of a father working for the family and living under the same roof as his kids. The kids have, I believe, a seventy percent chance of a higher success and better life. It's an exponential greater chance of kids not do, not getting into crime, not becoming criminals, not going to jail, succeeding, you know, finishing high school, six, being a success in, in school, whether K through 12 or, or into college, and further than down the line, them being successful when they leave the home. Just the wow. physical presence of a father, not even getting into the impact that a good dad will make on, on kids. Fathers are, are one of the, the most influential people in our lives. And this, it's the same when a father is not present. You know, this is where I, I think I heard it from Doug Wilson, maybe it was someone else. Uh, but but he'll, he, he likes to say the, the, hu- the husband, the father is always the head of the household, even if he's not there at the table. That dad sitting, sitting at the head of the table makes an impact the empty chair at the table makes a huge impact. And the reality is we hate fathers, right? We, we've, we've replaced our natural fathers with the state. This is where you get the welfare state. You have feminism and all these things have taught. You don't need, you don't need a father to provide for you. The government can, can provide for you. You don't need a father to educate you because you have the school there to educate you. The church has even adopted this, and you don't need a father to teach you spiritually because you have youth group. Youth, youth group can youth group can take care of your your spiritual and theological education. You don't need the dad to teach that for you. We hate fathers because ultimately we hate our heavenly father, and because we have gotten rid of fathers, that guidance is no longer there. The impact that fathers make is because they guide their children. You know, they, it's, it's the Proverbs that say, train up your son, you know, in, in the way that he should go and he'll, he'll remember it, right? Fathers guide their children into adulthood, into making their own impact on the world. And it's a part of God's good creation for fathers to, to, to be a part of this and to have that role in guiding their family. When you take that out, when you take that, that person out, when you take that guide out, you no longer have the dad to, to teach you that relativism 
is stupid. <laughs> yeah. You no longer have the dad to teach you how to be a man, how to be a woman, how to be a man of God, a woman of God, how to stand up for your faith, how to be humble yet bold. You don't have that guide. You don't have that guidance. And we see further and further, we are a more fatherless generation. I think as Michael Foster says, we're a nation of bastards. We have no fathers. And it's a result of hating fatherhood. Yeah. I think to put some scripture to that, man, and thank you so much for those thoughts. Your name actually pops up here in the scripture. It's, it's a very popular one when it comes to really uh, cutting relativity's head off, uh, to put it as a mental picture here in John 14, uh, John 14, 6, where he's answering Thomas, uh, Thomas asking how we can know the way of where you're going. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And here's the uh, sword that cuts off relativity's head. No one comes to the father except through me, right? It's raising that standard, but to go on with that thought of fatherhood, and this is actually the precedent in a lot of ways for that Romans one truth we'd like to flex about all have seen the glory of God. None are without excuse. We actually see this pop up here in verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so, man, that just, that just drills home. That drives that scriptural stake deep, deep into the ground about exactly what you're talking about. The issue is fatherlessness, uh, primarily, primarily for those who are spiritual uh, bastards, to borrow that verbiage, in the world, have known the glory of God and have instead loved the darkness rather than the light. You know, the rest of John 3 that people don't like to read. So yeah, man, I mean, that really drives it home. I, I love those points you made. I think it's really important to highlight that, like, you're talking about the Father as someone who gives direction, someone who gives stability, someone who gives uh, identity. And it's not in a domineering or in, like, a like a violent imposition sort of way. It's actually like, you know, fatherhood is pointing the son to, to the things that are true, uh, calling out things in the son that are true of that person. And that's true. I, I mean, not only of sons, but also of daughters as well, but just taking that metaphor and running with it. Like, I think, I think that's super important because what we've done is we've taken away God as the direction giver and the purpose organizer for our lives and uh, we've replaced him with something else, whatever the case may be. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's idolatry, it's self-worship, it's pride. But when you take away God as the direction giver, that's what, ha- that, that's what ends up happening. You end up in this sort of relativistic, there is no purpose, there is no sense. And uh, you're kind of without, uh, you're without purpose and direction because you've cut, off, you've cut yourself off from the source of those things. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. To drive this home even into further practicality, just these truths. Robert, I'd love to hear from you, man, as somebody who works in a blue-collar field. Uh, I mean, construction, you, you had to learn hard work from somewhere, man, and, and it even begs the question, why work so hard? Uh, why, why drive as far as you do? Why, why grind it out? I think that it kind of comes down to uh, you want to give glory where it's due, and you want to work for men as if you're working for the Father in heaven. So if you're being lazy and not doing your work and you're kind of taking longer breaks, that all is reflective in 
like other people will see it. But if you kind of go the extra mile and you're on time, you make sure that you're always working hard. You always have a good attitude while you're working. All of those things are seen by those around you and you're able to see there's something's different about you. And there's a lot of, uh, what's the word for it? All the, um, you're not allowed to say that because it's politically incorrect. PC, uh, non-PC. Yeah. And especially in the workplace, like you're too Republican. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. You can't say anything, but then when it comes to like, you kind of have to wait till somebody comes to you most of the time or just be willing to lose your job for what truly matters. And if that's standing for what is true and that is what it's going to end up taking. But um, like, I'm not going to deny what I believe. And then when somebody asks and sees something different, I want to be able to show that I'm different and point to the one who matters. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And praise God for that. But I'd be remiss uh, to uh, start working toward a closing point here for our part one of this episode um, as we continue to chew up this elephant uh, bite by bite. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the big bugaboo in the room, uh, the people who dropped this ball the most. Uh, it's easy to sit back and see culture do this, right? To see uh, our generation, um, generations after us, my siblings' generation, adopt a relativistic worldview. And, but like I said earlier, what can we expect? Uh, fools will think like fools. Those without a renewed mind will have foolish thoughts and will bend to their will. They are enslaved to sin. So what do we expect? Where do we need to uproot this problem? And I would like to propose, and fellas, let me know if I'm off base here or just pad it, pad it on. But man, the, the church is primarily complicit in the world adopting so ferociously a relativistic mindset and lifestyle. Why? because we've gotten really shy about sharing and discussing our savior. The world is going to look for a solution somewhere. It'll find it in sex, substance, sexual revolution. Um, What they consider to be freedom is actually just slavery deeper and deeper and their chains digging tighter. That's because the church has really dropped the ball on saying what Jesus himself said. He is the one way, truth, and life. Nobody's going to make it unless it's by his cross and in his blood, man. And so I think to nail that on the head, if any of you guys have any closing thoughts for us there, how can the church raise the standard? How can the church point to God's goodness, beauty, and love in that? I think it's often not being afraid to hurt feelings. Mm. Um, I was... the word will uh, pierce hearts and you let it pierce hearts Mm -hmm. and it's meant to be a a sword. Yeah, brother. Cuts down down to the bone marrow. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say simply the church needs to grow a spine. Mm. It does, man. It does. Absolutely. Andrew, what do you got? Dude, I think just with all that, like, what it, there's there's just so much like uh just thinking about uh i don't know just like being being restored to the father and how we just don't really seem to care about that 
Yeah. That should be something that's like, that, that's the heart and soul of the gospel is that Jesus restores you to right relationship with the father. Yeah. You're part of his household, part of his family adopted into his benefits. You're given an inheritance. Only fathers can give an inheritance in that way. You know what I mean? So I think the fact that we just don't care is because, because in theory we know better, right? Like we know, we know like the gospel, like for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right, right. you know, God, the father sent his son, but we know that, but we just don't, we don't care. We're not applying that consistently throughout our lives. And so we have to start caring right now. We have to read the word of God, like allow it to pierce. Like you said, like you have to let it cut down to the marrow. So. Yeah, man, absolutely. But like you said, there's so much, there's so much we can unpack and, and praise God that we get to steal you fellows for part two of this episode. So thank you guys so much for listening in. Be sure to check back in for part two, where we, are really going to unpack more of the practicalities of this issue. I think we've done a, a good bit of legwork here, um, setting the stage of the ideological issues with this relativity having no basis and that seeming to be its benefit, but it's actually just chains that bind people to slavery. So in our part two here, join us as we continue to bite down the elephant and get to our line of encouragement. But as always, let us send you out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Let's get to work, guys, and be sure to join us for part two.